in order to apply the main residence exemption where you've got multiple people on the title, all of the people on title need to reside in the property as their main residence. So if there's any period where that is not the case, you would need to rely on things like the absence rule or the rollovers and a, and a day of reckoning down the track. You can have a look through to the entire time that it was owned by the deceased and also for the period that it was owned by the executor or trustee of the testamentary trust. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 221 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When a main residence goes into an estate or divorce settlement, what happens to the main residence exemption? Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney with the answer. Does it matter in relationship breakdowns whether the husband and wife are joint tenants or tenants in common with respect to the uh, main residence exemption? Generally, for CGT purposes, it doesn't matter whether someone is a joint tenant or tenants in common. So for, for CGT purposes, there's a deemed sort of fiction that in the case of being joint tenants, which means that from a property law perspective, joint tenants means that you've sort of got an undivided interest in the property. It's not like this bit's mine and this bit's yours, whereas tenants in common, you can sort of more divide between the two. For CGT purposes, the rules say that if you own a property as joint tenants, you're treated the same as being tenants in common. So in other words, if you're both on title as joint tenants... Just like you were 50-50 It's just like you're 50-50, yeah, yeah. And people sometimes struggle with that when you have a couple and one, they own the property jointly and um, they may have acquired the property pre-CGT, but one of the persons died after 1985. And therefore what happens is the, the surviving spouse actually has two interests in the property, one which they originally owned and one that they acquired or inherited on the death of their spouse, where in reality they always were an owner of the property. But for CGT, it's it's deemed to be the same. So the same applies with relationship breakdown. It doesn't doesn't matter if it's owned as joint tenants or, or tenants in common. And so now if the husband moves out but mm. remains on the title for a few years while he and his wife battle it out in court mm. and then in the end he assigns his share to his wife or ex-wife yeah. would he then have to pay cgt on the capital gain during the years he was in court so while he was no longer living mm. in the property but he was fighting in court for those years would he have to pay cgt on any capital gain Yeah, good question. So the first thing I would say is that there is generally an exemption for CGT where you've got transfers due to relationship breakdowns. So if you do a transfer because you've agreed on consent orders or the court has ordered that property is to be transferred, generally you can structure matrimonial settlements as being CGT free, as in a rollover would apply. But that's not the end of the story because in the case where a property is transferred from one spouse to another, there's still some relevance when that other spouse actually sells the property in the, at the end. So what I mean by that is that let's say you've got an example of a husband who owns property, say it's used as an investment property, and under the 
terms of the relationship breakdown, the property is to be transferred to the wife. So it's 100% owned by the husband. It's going to be transferred 100% to the wife. And it's been used as an investment property so far. And the wife intends to live in the property going forward. So, so in other words, to recap, husband owns the property, use 100% for investment. Under the terms that have been agreed, it'll be transferred to the wife and, and the wife's going to live in the property. And I can see where you're going. Yes. So what happens in those circumstances is the main residency rules, again, another nuance of the main residency rules is that they they contain a sort of a look back regime where, where these sort of transfers occur. So what happens is now that the wife owns the property, for the period that she didn't own the property, but it was owned by the husband, that use has to be taken into account as well. So in other words, in that scenario where the property was used as an investment property, that portion of the property or that time portion can never be exempt from CGT. So there might be a transfer now and that transfer is disregarded. So husband doesn't pay any tax and wife's going to live in the property. So that's all fine. When the wife goes to sell the property, she may have lived in it from the day that she acquired the property under the terms of the matrimonial separation or settlement. But the period that needs to be looked at is actually back to when the husband acquired the property. So in the case of it being And his used, cost base. Yes, and his cost base as well. Yes, so under the matrimonial rollovers, it's, the cost base is historical as well. So in that scenario, if the property was rented for 10 years as an investment property and then the wife used it for 10 years as a main residence, she would only get a 50% CGT exemption and the cost base would be the historical cost base of the, of the husband. So let's say the husband bought it 20 years ago for $100,000 10 years later, he divorces, he transfers it to his wife. The wife, 10 years later, sells it for 2.1 million. So there's yep. a capital gain of 2 million. Yep. 1 million would be subject to CGT, 50% discount. So the wife would pay capital gains tax on $500,000. Yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so in one sense, it's completely exempt on the settlement. But when you apply the main residence exemption, where you've got cases that property was acquired through a marital breakdown, you need to actually go back to look at the previous yes. use of the property. Yes, and if the wife is in the top marginal tax rate, yep. she basically pays $250,000 tax, which she probably didn't see coming and no. wasn't included in the settlement, in the divorce settlement. Yeah, absolutely, because even though the property in that example, in the settlement, the property is going to be used as the main residence, there should be some allowance or calculation for the fact that there actually is an underlying tax liability with that property, even if it's going to be used as main residence going forward because some people, especially if they're not tax lawyers, they might yeah. say, oh, well, the property is going to be main residence going forward and this is the date she uh, acquired the property. So there's, yeah. there's not going to be a tax bill, but so you it's would, not actually how it applies. Yeah, so you yeah. would hope that her family lawyer mm. understands tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, um, and the same issue could apply where you've, in the first example that you mentioned, where you might have a property that's actually owned jointly by husband and wife and, and one partner moves out. So in order to apply the main residence exemption where you've got multiple people on the title, all of the people on title need to be need to reside in the property as their main residence. So if there's any period where that is not the case, you would need to rely on things like the absence rule or the rollovers and a, and a day of reckoning down the, down yeah. the track. So if you go back to the example we had, yep. if the property hadn't been an investment property, but the husband had lived in it mm. with, with the family for 10 years, and then he moved out 
it was transferred over to the wife, then there wouldn't be any CGT because the husband lived in it for 10 years together with his family and then the wife took over, continued living in it. So it was a main residence all the way through. Yeah. Then there wouldn't be any capital gains subject to tax. Yeah, yeah, that should be the result. You sort of have to have an absence rule applied maybe if, if, if it's moved out before the transfer date. But yeah, I think the result would be that there wouldn't be any, there shouldn't be any tax in those situations. That example where there's multiple family members on title sometimes does come up where you have um, parents buying properties for children as well. So sometimes parents might help their children buy property. And in terms of they might think, okay, well, I want my child to have this property, but I don't want them to do anything stupid. And uh, I don't want them to sell it without me consenting to that. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to be on title. I might be 50% on title. In those circumstances, but not actually live in the property, it might be just the child's property, that's a real sleeper issue because in that scenario, in order to claim the full main residence exemption over the property, the entire, sorry, both the child and the parent would need to occupy the property as their main residence. For the parent, they might actually have their own main residence or just share they don't actually live there would mean that they wouldn't actually get the full main residence on the sale in that scenario. So a far better way of doing things in that scenario is instead put of a mortgage. Yeah, it's essentially to put a mortgage over the property instead of actually going on title. Because the problem is if you're on title, then you don't get the the main residence exemption. I have had this come up as a, as an actual issue. And the only other thing you could think about arguing is is a sort of a resulting trust type bear trust argument where Although the, the parent was on title, they they only held legal title and equitable title was fully owned by the oh, child yes. under sort of the principles of advancement. So the argument is basically that beneficial ownership rested completely in the child. Yeah, yeah. But um, And did that work? Yeah, it, does, it can work. It can work. It depends on the evidence. So if there's evidence to say that the parent did want to own 50% because they, and usually they do because... They want to be able to stop the property being sold, for instance. Then that, if that's evidence that actually supports that, it's going to be difficult. But if the evidence is more they didn't think about it, or they fully intended the, prop- the child to be able to do what they want, and for some reason the parent was just down on title, then you could actually get the main residence exemption still. But it's an important point to note is that all the people living in the property need to occupy it as their main residence. Coming back to the mortgage, yeah, it can be tricky because. If you put a mortgage on the property, you probably have to provide full finance because a bank is unlikely to lend onto a property where the parent already has registered a first mortgage. A bank yeah. is unlikely to go into a second in as a second mortgager. Yeah. So in the scenario where you've got a parent essentially providing money to their child to buy a property and assuming that the child is also borrowing from a bank, the bank will, of course, take first registered mortgage. But it is possible to have a second ranking mortgage. So, and the so banks don't mind that. So the banks much. don't mind that because the principle of a second ranking mortgage is you will always rank behind the bank. So, no matter what, the bank will get paid yeah. first. And that's so all they. That's, that's all they worry. That's the most important thing for the bank. So, the parent still sort of has a bit of say in what happens and can block certain things, but they always rank behind the bank as well. So mm. yeah, it's a common thing to do is to put a second ranking mortgage in those scenarios. So you get the full main residence exemption, but you still can have some control over what happens. Another scenario, husband and wife jointly own the main residence, but also jointly own an investment property. Then they split up, one spouse 
continues in the main residence, one spouse continues in the investment property. Both names are on each title. Maybe they change it at some stage, but let's assume they don't change that. Mm. Can you then claim main residence exemptions for both or you basically lose 50% of the main residence exemption in each of the properties? Good question. So the main residence exemption rules say that where you have a, where you have a couple uh, spouses, they cannot, it's technically, other, other than this rule, it could be technically possible for two spouses to claim different properties as their main residence exemption. So, sorry, as their main residence. So say a really simple example, husband and wife, they own two properties, husband owns 100% of one, wife owns 100% of the other property. Without this rule, they could actually apply the main resident, each apply a main residence exemption yes. to a property and get both properties exempt. However, the rules say that where you are a sort of a legitimate couple, not going through divorce, separations, etc., you have to choose one or the other and you can't get the, the benefit of both. And is that rule specific to New South Wales? No, no, these are oh, the, the Commonwealth rules, so okay. it doesn't matter where you are. That's a Commonwealth rule. So the example that you gave where there was two properties that were 50-50 owned, there would be no way of ever getting both properties exempt because, as we talked about with the earlier example, each owner needs to be able to treat that property as their main residence. So in that scenario, whichever way you slice and dice it, you could only ever get either 100% of one property exempt and 0% of the other or 50% of both. Okay. Yeah. So that means clean up the titles, yep. put each property into one name and yeah, sort eventually it out. cancel yep. it. Yeah, clean it up, transfer it, and then at least going forward, you might have that historical issue on how things were used previously, but at least going forward, you can get the full main residence exemption. So just briefly, there's one other area that um, we haven't gone through in, in particular detail yet, and it's the case of what, what if you acquire a dwelling that's a main residence from a deceased estate? So in other words, the now deceased occupied the property as their main residence, and how is that treated in the hands of the trustee, the executor, or the trustee of the testamentary trust? And then also in the hands of the beneficiary. Yes, and also in the hands of the, the beneficiary as well. So where you've got the trustee uh, being the executor or trustee of a testamentary trust, there's rules that say that if they sell the property, then in certain circumstances, the property will be completely exempt from under the main residence exemption. So you sort of you can have a look through to the entire time that it was owned by the deceased and also for the period that it was owned by the executor or trustee of the testamentary trust. And the simple example is that you have two years from the date of the deceased death to sell the property or within a longer period allowed by the commissioner. So it's two years with an asterisk and the, the commissioner does have some discretion in this regard to give a little bit more time the commissioner has published recently guidelines on this on this topic about in what circumstances the discretion will be will be exercised and essentially the circumstances in which that longer period will be exercised is usually where there is a problem with the estate and it's usually where there would be family compensation family compensation claims yeah a beneficiary or a someone who's been cut out of the will makes a claim to say that look 
you haven't been, haven't been provided for and I'm entitled to my share from the estate. And those claims can go for quite a long time. And, and if you're the person responsible for the deceased estate, you, you, can't would, you, would, you can't sell the property while those while those things are. Uh, well, generally, it doesn't happen that those those are sold. But the guidelines make it clear that the discretion is not going to be exercised in cases where maybe there's a there's a blip in the market, or it's you know a good time to sell, or that you wanted to do substantial renovations before selling the property. So things like waiting waiting for the market to recover or doing re- renovations, they're not reasons, but a genuine dispute over the estate, things like that are, are genuine reasons to allow for that two-year period to be extended. So let's say there is no genuine dispute over the estate yep. so that we are limited to the two years. Yep. If we then don't sell within the two years but sell after three years, would we lose the entire main residence exemption or, or would we just lose the exemption loss. for that yeah. one year? Yeah, it would only be from... The date of the date of death of the deceased. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, so you, you lose do, the two years as well. You lose the two years. Yeah, but you don't so, use you don't lose the period for when I see the deceased owned the property. But so it's not like the six year absence rule where you only then come up for CGT at the end of the six year. So yep. In this case, you lose it from the date of death. You lose the yeah. entire two years. Yep. Yep. Correct. Correct. Okay. And so now, if you assume that you do sell within the two years. There are basically four steps where the property can go through. It goes from the deceased to the executor, then it possibly goes from the executor to the testamentary trust, and then it possibly goes to a beneficiary or it gets sold at any of these steps. Mm. As long as we stay within two years at any of these steps and we sell within two years, the entire thing is capital gain tax-free. But if the beneficiary doesn't sell within two years, then I think their cost base resets to the date of death and then they're up for CGT from the date of death unless, of course, they qualify for the main residence exemption themselves. Yeah, it would depend on when the property has been acquired, if it was pre-CGT or or post-CGT. Let's let's assume it's post-CGT. Yeah, if it's post-CGT. Oh, I see. Yes, of course. So for the beneficiary, it will always be post-CGT when yeah. they get it. But if the deceased had it pre-CGT, then... Then the, they'd get market value. Ah, yeah, then it gets the cost dies. base of market value. Yep. If it's post-CGT, then it gets the cost base of the deceased. Cost base of the deceased, yeah, historical okay. cost base. Yeah, yeah. So there's the one who in those circumstances, they want to sell it within that two-year period or live in it as their main residence. Yes, yeah. because otherwise, if you are the beneficiary and you don't make it your main residence and you hang on to it past the two years, yep. you come up for CGT on the entire capital gain if the property is post-CGT. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, so you basically have to sell within two years. Yeah, sell within two years or live in it. Yeah, yep. Mm. yep. But that also means that in 100 years, there won't yep. be any pre-CGT properties anymore. No. Because any pre-CGD property that then passes on upon death to a beneficiary is yeah. no longer pre-CGT. It's very unlikely. So so in the cases of property owned by individuals, yep, everyone dies at some point and um, it will go from pre-CGT to post. In the cases of trusts, trusts would because trusts are not property as well, it would be when the trust vests. So that's usually 80 years, unless it's established in South Australia, it might be longer. 
some of the trust vests then it would cease mm. to be pre-CGT. Or you have companies as well and, and companies don't have an indefinite life. So subject to some other integrity rules, a company could hold the property. Yeah, but even then the shares pass on. Yeah, the shares so do pass on, but there is there case six or the, something. There's Division One Forty Nine, but there is exemptions on Division One Forty Nine where where people die. So it's a bit more complex and messy where you've got trusts and companies, and you've got integrity rules as well that apply. But yeah, the general thrust is that everything mm. that was pre CGT will eventually should eventually become post. Yeah. So that means our great grandchildren won't need to worry about. Yeah, well, I mean, the rules were changed in 1985 and we're still talking about them now 35 years later. So it's only reasonable to expect that we shouldn't have to worry about the difference at some point in time. The main takeaway is if it's pre-CGT, yep. the beneficiary gets the cost base as market value. It's If it's post-CGT, the beneficiary gets the original cost base of the deceased, yep. hence is up for a massive capital gain if they don't sell within two years. Yeah, correct. Unless, Unless they make it their main residence. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, definitely. You can see there's quite a lot to cover even mm. in main residence. Yeah, it's a massive tax concession as well. I think in terms of tax concessions is the biggest, it's the biggest one by far. The main residence exemption. Yeah, like in terms of tax foregone. Oh, really? Because they do, they do like, they publish data which shows like how much each tax concession in legislation costs government in terms of like sort of putting money into super at lower rates and um, small business CGT concessions. And the biggest one is this main residence exemption by oh, far really? in terms of money foregone. And government. probably also for the age pension because it's the main residence is not included in the age pension yeah, so that, that in the well. asset test yeah, so that yeah, probably yeah. costs a lot of money as yeah, well. Yeah, that and the 50% discount that costs the most and then I think it's a superannuation. Small business concessions is not that high on the list like it's it might be in the top 10 but it's oh, not. really? The top is like that's exactly. Because the small business CGT concessions always get praised as the most concessional yeah. concession in the year. Uh, but not that many people can actually apply them I mean yeah. you have to be actually running a business to yeah to so on clear dollar terms yeah as a nation yeah the main residence exemption is the most generous yeah well you could buy a property for 10 million in sydney and sell for 40 million and the, the entire thing would be exempt you know some property in you know rose bay or something like that it could be all exempt so those are huge dollars foregone on yeah. situations like that and everyone has a problem well, not everyone but it applies to such a broad amount of people <laughs> That's a few of the um, more nuanced and niche areas in CGT exemption. We've talked about multiple dwellings, the requirement to have a dwelling, Airbnbs, producing income, the absence rule, CGT on deceased estate and relationship breakdown. So you can see there's a lot of areas that are actually quite complex. And you can probably understand now why there's about 40 or 50 pages of, of legislation. Now, one thing we haven't covered in this episode is the proposed loss of the CGT main residence for individuals that are non-residents of Australia. We'll, uh, we'll cover that in the next episode because it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Welcome back. So if you inherit a main residence, you need to either sell it within two years or live in it as your main residence. If you don't do either of these, when you eventually sell, 
you will pay CGT on the full capital gain since the date of the original purchase by the deceased, assuming that it is a post-CGT property. Otherwise, if it is a pre-CGT property, you pay CGT since the date of death. In the next episode, episode 222, Andrew Henshaw will talk about the main residence exemption for foreign residents. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.